Today's scripture comes from the book of Hosea, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. That's Hosea, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress, <clears throat> even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turned to other gods and loved cakes and raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethesk of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without effort, or house, household good, gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of God. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. And it seems like some of us are back from taking finals. I hope you did well. If you didn't, then there's always next year. Um, I mean, what's right now? Um, I just want to give a few announcements as I continue uh, before I begin the message. And that is starting next week, Ho Young and his hair care team are, have decided to start a coffee program. Did I say that right? Coffee? It's coffee, but um, they're going to start a coffee program from 11.30 to 11.55. So a lot of us come here early. They don't know exactly what to do. We have good coffee for you. And I think there's some pastries and we can have some fellowship before the service starts. So I, in particular, am excited for good coffee. And so if you want to join us, come at 11.30, and then at 11.55, we can all come in and prepare ourselves for service. I also wanted to say thank you to Pastor Paul for preaching the message last week. I was really blessed. And uh, I really do appreciate when people come, go out of their way to share the message with us and bless our church, and especially for our um, associate pastor to do that. It's not easy. Um, to, to all of a sudden go into sermon mode, and, and he graciously does that for us and for me. So I thank him for that. Uh, let's pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. And there's like, um, there's a fad these days. I think people call them now dad jokes. I wanted to test them out with you all. I'm not someone that does sh the tell dad jokes, but <clears throat> I have four for you. I like one of them, and if you know who I am, then I guess you'll know which one I like. But I think dad jokes is just another term for corny joke, and they just wanted to revamp it. But... Here are some dad jokes uh, in light of the Christmas season. 
How do I know when Santa is in the room? I can sense his presence. So you have to be a little quicker in getting these. It's like, um, so think, think like, okay. What do you call it when you don't believe in Santa Claus? You are an eggnog stick. No, 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 I don't need that. No, I'm not asking for that. I never asked for that. I said I would tell you some dad jokes. That's it. <clears throat> I asked my wife, <coughs> I asked my wife what she wanted for Christmas. She told me nothing would make me happier than a diamond necklace, so I bought her nothing. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. How did, the last one is, how did Mary and Joseph know that Jesus weighed eight pounds and 10 ounces? Because they had a way in the manger. Wow, that was really bad. That, um, so that's four. I think if you know who I am, then you know which one I like. The way in the manger one, obviously. Um, Netflix came out with a, a movie recently, and uh, they were like promoting it like a lot. So every time I would turn on Netflix, this trailer would come up for, I think it's called The Christmas Prince or something like that. And now it's like, okay, okay, down, 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 right? And I turned to my wife as like, let me guess what this movie's about. It's about a Christmas prince. It's about some girl who gets lost in some faraway land and she meets this guy, but he's like a fake, but only she knows who the real person is, but she falls in love with the real person, but he happens to be a prince. And then there's the whole challenge of her going through, because she's just a commoner, going through the whole ordeal of being with royalty, and there's that drama. And eventually they live happily ever after, but there has to be a makeover in the middle somewhere where she becomes from regular person to royalty. And I, I thought I explained every love movie there was, but Netflix with that movie, I don't know if that's the movie, I didn't see the movie. No, seriously, I didn't see the movie. If, if, if you saw it and that was, that's what the movie's about, then, you know, that's what it is. But Netflix came out and they tweeted that 53 people watched it 18 days in a row. And then they ended that tweet by saying, who hurt you? And um, I, I thought that was mean. I thought that was very mean, especially probably the people that watch it 18 days in a row are probably young people, you know, maybe really want um, to, to really feel love, you know? And I think that's the kind of season we're in. We're in a season where we want to laugh and we want to love. And even though you don't like the dad jokes or you don't laugh at it, you kind of want to hear it. And even though, you know, in particular, you wouldn't watch this show on Netflix, you do want that feeling of love. And we are in this place and time and season where we want to laugh and we want to love. And so we are now bombarded by images of these things that should make us laugh and should make us feel love. But I think, to be honest, we have to get to this first part, and that is, if we really want to laugh and we really want to love, we need to know the real situation. What's the real situation? 
I think Hosea captures it perfectly because God first demonstrates his love for his people by asking Hosea to marry a woman of whoredom, marry a woman that was a known prostitute, marry a woman who was promiscuous and known to be promiscuous. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I think God is trying to point out something here. I'm not sure which word, but he's like emphasizing a word. But in verse 3, it says, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of the blame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so we see that there is a lot of just, I think it's like setting up for a sad story. I mean, even the mom's name is the blame. So if you need to blame someone, this is right there. And if you need to think about a great woman's name, like I don't know anybody that names their daughter Gomer. It's like, so these are people that we don't even name our children with now. But if you continue on in chapter 1, Hosea does take his wife, take Gomer to be his wife, and bears a son, Jezreel, which means God sows. And then it says in chapter 1, she has a second child, no mercy, and a third child, not my people. But it doesn't say that Hosea, it was born to Hosea. It just says she gave birth to these two. But the first one, Gomer does bear Jezreel to Hosea. But the second and third doesn't. So a lot of people think, man, these aren't even his kids. So she was even promiscuous in even when she was wed to him. And so we see this. This is the picture that God is showing. And that's not very, you might think that's not very Christmassy. It's not very nice. It's kind of a sad picture. But I do believe this is something that we need to wrestle with and we need to recognize and we need to see. Um, we had some great uh, studies and Pastor Paul did this um, financial st uh, stewardship seminar for the last seven weeks. It ended last week. Our discipleship class ended this past Wednesday, and I personally had such a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, in particular, this last session, we put up generations uh, because we were doing Acts chapter 2, verse 40, which talks about the corrupt generation. And we, in particular, we are doing this generation, and one generation, I wrote out millennials, and I said, what is a key characteristic of millennial? And someone said, hardworking. And I was like, what? And I didn't write it down. I was like, no, I'm not writing that down. <laughs> no one says, I'm sorry. No, but seriously. Um, and then we talked about Gen Xers, baby boomers. We didn't talk about the greatest generation or the depression generation, but those three generations, which most, if not all of us, are in. So you're either a millennial if you're sitting here, a Gen Xer, and quite possibly even a baby boomer. Um, millennials are known to not be in a hurry. And that's a really a nice way to put it. If for every single generation that has happened in the past, millennials have hit 
the milestone of adulthood later, meaning marriage is later than any other uh, generation, home ownership is later, parenthood is later. And I was talking with a deacon uh, yesterday and I was sharing with her, there was a, a show that I particularly like and captured millennialism really well. And um, he's a temp at a company. And so they asked him to start this project and he goes, well, no, 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 I can't, I can't commit to that. Don't make me commit to that. And then they, goes, then they go, okay, okay, okay. So you're not going to do it. And he goes, no, 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 no. Don't make me not commit to that. I don't want to commit to not committing either. Let's just say maybe. And that was it. That was the end of the scene. And I thought that captured it really well. The things that millennials struggle with is um, being noncommittal. Uh, it's hard to commit supposedly and there are some key characteristics like baby boomers a lot of people think that baby boomers are the big wasters of resources from the greatest generation greatest generation is dubbed greatest generation because they lived and fought through world war ii and they survived they you know they won and there was this big boom in the economy from the depression and people think baby boomers quite possibly wasted it and Gen Xers uh, believe they know everything. Believe me, I know. Gen Xers know everything. But every generation has idols it must battle. And I would say even that, we have to recognize that every generation is somehow battling idols that are pervasive throughout generations. Meaning there are some things that every generation does go through equally or the same way in like money envy and sex c.s lewis had this really brilliant illustration and now i think it's almost prophetic c.s lewis had this brilliant illustration about how we have distorted sex and how we've made sex into this weird thing and he said it's like People are so obsessed by going to the strip clubs and women taking off their clothes slowly. And he would say, what if you went to a country and they would take a dish of food and what they would do is they would kind of like have it tantalizing, put on a little music, I don't know, some music, and they would slowly raise the cover, right? And then you would be looking at it and uh, you, know, you would see like a little piece of bacon. And then if that was the case, C.S. Lewis says this, would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And that he was referring that to sex because we do that with sex. I thought that was brilliant when I read it because he probably had no idea that that would literally happen in 2000, the teens. Now we have things called food porn. And we don't even know what it means to call something porn. Um, I was home, I was like, I need to find out the, the definition, the legitimate Merriam-Webster's definition for pornography. So I need to look it up, but I need to be very careful. As soon as I typed in pornography in Google, I said, space definition, and then I press enter, and then my wife walked in. I was like, look, look, I, have, I can explain. This is for sermon prep, this is legitimate. And then, you know, she totally believed me. But um, the definition of pornography is printed or visual material 
containing the explicit description or display of sexual organs or activity intended to stimulate erotic rather than aesthetic or emotional feelings. It's intended to stimulate erotic feelings. And so we now call things blank porn, like food porn, because now even food is stimulating something that shouldn't be stimulating. We now live in this generation and lifetime where we have completely confused our desires and it's even getting harder and harder to differentiate between hunger and eroticism. Like 20, 30 years ago, that would have been unheard of and ridiculous. But yes, it's true. We literally say things like food porn. We need to continually find ways to be loved when we put things on social media, when we put things for people to see us and how we walk, how we dress, how we talk, how we present ourselves, it's all so that people can see us and it's about how we're loved and perceived or how we need to be loved. And just like Gomer, it's not Hosea, it's other gods. We continue to whore ourselves for other things, impure things. And what happens is that even our desires get twisted and we can't even enjoy the simple joys of life anymore. You can't even enjoy a burger anymore without twisting the desire and calling it porn, putting it up on media so that other people should envy and have that twisted desire just like you are right now when you put it up. Gomer was given and she was taken in by a pure and lasting and good love, but she couldn't enjoy it because she didn't know how to enjoy it. Gomer is us. We go around relentlessly trying to be loved by things that will never fulfill. If only I had a better body, I would be loved. So when we hit the gym, it's not about health. It's about being loved, being noticed. That's why what you wear in the gym is so important. There's gym outfits. I think there's OOTDs that are talking about people who have athletic wear on the outside. And it's supposed to be some kind of thing where you wear like yoga pants outside and now you're hip. I don't know. It's, it's, I, I have yet to try yoga pants. But... If only I could capture the right lighting, I would be loved. If only I made more money, I would be loved. If only I were younger or I looked younger. If only I was more athletic. If only I. And we fall into this lie that the world tells us, you will be loved if only you. So the world says you will be loved if. But here's the Christmas message. The Christmas message is not you will be loved if. The Christmas message is that for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. There was nothing Gomer did to deserve 
Hosea's love, just like there was nothing we could have done to deserve God's love, but we got it. That is Christmas. You know who knew that? Mary knew that. And Mary had this Magnificat, which is in the first chapter of Luke. It's a hymn or a song that she was singing out to God. And Mary knew how to trust in the promise that God was giving her. But I want to point out two things the Magnificat. You could probably look it up later, but in both verse 48 and 52, she talks about being in humble estate. These days, we talk about humility. Oh, I'm going to humble you, or you better be humble, boy. And it's like almost like, oh, you know, it's kind of a good thing or a bad thing. But back then, when they said, I was humble, it really meant a negative thing. It meant I was poor, that people didn't even look at me or give me any regard. And she goes, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations shall call me blessed. And in verse 52, she says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You know, what we really need to recognize and believe, it's not because of what we've done. Yes, Pastor Eugene is drilling into us. It's because of who God is. It's not you will be loved if you do something. What all other religions or a-religions or non-religions will tell you, it is just God loved you. And if that's the case, how do we respond now? We need to respond by, number one, trusting in that promise, trusting and walking in that confidence. God does love me. God does love me. How much? Even though Gomer would leave Hosea and go back to her old lifestyle, and how poignant is that? How many times have we said, oh, man, I love you, Jesus, and just go right back. We're too ashamed to even come out to the fellowship after that. But this is what God does. God commands, in the verses that James read, God commands Hosea to go again and love Gomer. In verse 2, something happens. So God commands Hosea to go back and love Gomer, even though she was an adulteress, even though she, she destroyed his heart. She stabbed him in the deepest, most hurtful place. She left him, and he has now three kids. Two, he doesn't even know if it's his and God says, go back and love her. And I was thinking about that. What person in their right mind would do that today? If you were married to someone and that person just destroyed that promise that you made, that commitment, just bye, didn't even give it a thought, and just goes back to living a life like you were never married. What would what would you have to get to ever even go back. Would you even go back? Who in their right mind would even give you the advice, oh, you should go back and try to make things work? No one would say that. No one would say that. But God says, go again and love Gomer. And Hosea does because this is God's command. Hosea is doing it because God is showing, this is how I loved you. 
The world kept on demanding things from you, and that's not real love. This condition that whatever, and people call it conditional love, unconditional, whatever. What God gave you wasn't conditional love, unconditional. God just gave you love. And he goes back to show that God loves us. And when he goes back, he does something. In the second verse that James read, Hosea, it doesn't say Hosea goes back and loves Gomer. It says Hosea goes and he obeys by buying her back. And it shows us something deep. It shows us something true. Love is action. Love isn't just words or empty promises. Love is action. And it says that he got 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I looked up what a homer and a lethic was. A lethic is about half a homer. And a homer is uh, 220 liters of barley. So a homer and a half would be 330 liters of barley. And he would bring just to get her back. What I realized is that to get her back, to love her the way God wants Hosea to love Gomer, it was not cheap. It's not easy, and it was not cheap. And I don't know if he spent everything he had, because what if a slave's price was 30 shekels? Because back then it was decided a slave's price was 30 shekels, and what if she was bound, and she, was, she, couldn't, she needed to be set free, and he didn't even have 30 shekels. He had 15, so he would scrounge up all that he had, and I was imagining in my head that he would take 330 liters of barley to make up for the missing shekels that he had. And you can think about it, carrying hundreds of pounds of barley over so that he could get Gomer back. When we see this, when we recognize what God has done for us, it changes something in us. When the Spirit of God opens up in your mind that what God did for you is no easy or simple thing, but it took everything that he had, it opens up something for us. It changes something in our inner being. And what the Spirit of God helps us do now is instead of living and working for yourself, you live and work for a greater purpose. You want to not just follow your own will, but you want to follow the will of the highest order of love. And yeah, there's lots of movies like this out now uh, talking about love and Christmas love. And every time we watch you, like, so close, so close, but you missed the mark. And you could sing songs like, all you need is love. All you need is love. Anyway, that's a different movie. But you could sing songs like that. But what kind of love is important? And what kind of love we've been given is this scandalous love, this love that the world would be like, no, 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 no. You don't do that. This person cheated on you. You say goodbye and you move on. You throw that person's butt to the curb and you move on with your life. But you see, what's scandalous is what people will be like, no, 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 you don't do that. But God did. God did. 
And I would say once we recognize this scandalous love, the most foolish thing that we could do is to say that we believe in what Christ has done for us and live like an unbeliever. The most foolish thing that we could do is to say we believe what Christ has done for us but live like an unbeliever. How do we live like a believer? How do we practice scandalous love ourselves now? In verse 5, it says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You know what's interesting? How we practice scandalous love now has to do with fear in verse 5. And you're like, you might be thinking, oh, even in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul talks about working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why does the Bible, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about scandalous love, when we talk about the gospel, why is there fear and trembling? Shouldn't there be just joy and excitement? Joy and excitement. So work out your salvation in joy and excitement. That makes more sense to me. Why fear and trembling? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why do we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Why do we need to even mention fear when we're talking about love? It's because, number one, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about love, number one, the stakes are high. It's about life and death. Love isn't just about an emotion. Love is about life and death. So the stakes are high. Anytime you recognize the stakes are high, there is fear and trembling. People who even would bet on something, when the wager is high, no one just goes, eh. Their, their heart rate is racing. They try to hide it the best they can if you're playing poker, I suppose. But it's racing because the stakes are high. In love, in salvation, the stakes are high. It's life and death. Number two, the danger of sin. There is the danger of sin. We should tremble lest we would offend God, the God of our salvation, and lose his favor. When we truly love somebody, there is fear and trembling that takes place because we don't want to disappoint that person. Even if I am prone to wander, prone to sin, I cling on to Jesus. And I say, I am prone to wander, but that's why uh, my song is, Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Number three, Christ's sacrifice for us. Why should we fear and tremble? Because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ himself tells his disciples, you want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. In fact, this line that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whoever who would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? People are like, wow, that's a really tough call. It's a tough call to take up the cross. Think about what Jesus did. 
Think of the cross Jesus picked up and carried down, that Via Dolorosa. And Jesus himself comes to us now. Those that recognize Christ's love for us, you also take up the cross, follow me. Do you think there isn't fear and trembling in that? Even Jesus himself was trembling, where when he was praying, blood would come out of his pores. But what about it if you don't? And Jesus says, what's the other option? If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. What's the point of getting everything that you want in this world if in the end you're just going to end up with nothing? Is what he is saying. What's the point if you try to get as much money as you can, the most Instagram followers as you can, try to be the most respected in your community or circle as you can, and you lose it, and you lose your soul in the process? Because the truth of the matter is this. The call is tough, but the reward is matchless. The call is tough, but the reward is matchless. When people come to me and say, I know about sacrifice a little now. I know about sacrifice a little. I have a family. I know what it means to truly sacrifice because before I live for myself, now I have to live for my spouse or my kids. And I, I remember hearing that a lot. And I remember thinking to myself, just like a love song, just like one of those Christmas movies, so close, but you missed it again. Your family is Christ's family. When someone said to him, Jesus, before I follow you, let me bury my father, Jesus goes, let the bury, dead bury their own. The guy just wanted to honor his father and his family by burying him. What's the big deal? Jesus is saying, you have a priority now. If you are in Christ's family, I am your priority. To truly practice this scandalous love, we must go out of our comfort zone. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless. To truly practice scandalous love, we need to go out of this circle that we de designate. Sure, maybe it was one person before. You know, now it's like four people. But Jesus says something else. He's like, no, 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 no. You see someone poor, your heart better go after him. You see someone naked, you better take off your own cloak. In fact, that is, if there is a litmus test, that's one of them. That's one of them. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Number one is to feed and clothe and shelter those that are less off than you. And number two is to keep holy. Keep holy. How do we do that? You know, we need to recognize something. And one thing that I've been really bombarded with and continually pounded in my reading and studying of the word is that when Jesus even says, oh, you clothed me when I was naked. You fed me when I was hungry. You gave me shelter when I was homeless. When he said that, and then the people respond, when did we ever do that? And he said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. 
And I, was, I, was kept on, I kept on thinking about that and, you know, reading that. Uh, during discipleship, one time we had uh, pizza and Italian subs from this place in Garfield that I particularly enjoy. Their Italian subs are just out of this world. And our, our Ho Young, he's the one that introduced me to this place. And um, the Sicilians are pretty, pretty uh, spectacular too. So one time for discipleship, I thought maybe I'll pick up a Sicilian pie and a bunch of these uh, Italian subs. And so I got out of my car and it was cold. And I remember some guy just standing on the corner and I, I looked at him and then he looked at me and he gave me this like weird smile. So I was like, mm, so, okay. And so I just walked by him and then I went and picked up the, I didn't tell the discipleship group this, but I, this was what happened right before you ate those um, Italian subs and the Sicilian slices. I picked up the pie, I, I put on the 10 sandwiches on top of the pie, and I walked out of the store. And the guy over there already knows us, because so, we go there so often, he's always, he, make, he makes small talk, how's everything going? It's like, good, where's everybody else? It's like, well, they're waiting keeping me with the small talk. They're hungry. And so, so I left, and um, I go out the door, and I'm going to my car, and that guy who had that weird smile who nodded to me runs after me, and he says, and he asks me, uh, can I have a sandwich? Can I have a sandwich? And I looked at him. I was like, of course, man, you can have a sandwich. In the, in the back of my head, I, I had to confess, in the back of my head, I was like, I wonder if there's going to be enough food now Maybe I, I can't eat. <laughs> That's just in the back of my head. I'm a bad person. But um, I took it, and I said, of course, man, you can have a sandwich. And I took the sandwich. I, I was like, do you want the one with cheese or without cheese? Because I got one sandwich without cheese for one of our deacons who doesn't eat cheese. And so he's like, no, I'll take, I'll take the one with cheese. So I, I took it, and I gave it to him. And then he goes, thank you so much. And I looked at him. It's like, no problem. And I said, oh, man, wait up, wait up one minute. Give me one second. I was holding this, and I took out my wallet to see if I had any cash. And I had one $10 bill. So I took out the $10 bill, and I said, here's some cash. I hope, uh, you know, you can find something else to eat if you're still hungry. And he goes, you know, people, uh, they don't even accept me into the shelters in Garfield. And I didn't know what to believe. And I was like, okay. And he was telling me a little bit about his story. And then I looked at him, and he goes, people don't accept me in shelters. And I looked at him, and I wanted to say the reason why. Because when you look at him, he looks like a villain from a Bond movie. Or you know that bad guy from Limitless? You know the bad guy from Limitless? He literally looked exactly like him. So I wanted to say, people, people are nice to you because you look really like, like a bad guy in the movie. But I didn't say that. I just said, I was just listening to him, and... Uh, and he was saying, you know, they don't even accept me in shelters. And then he turned to me and he says, no one's, no one's ever done something this nice to me before in my life. And I just stopped. I was like, what? And he goes, no one ever did anything this nice to me in my life. And I, and I wanted to say, have you never met a Christian? Have you never met a Christian in your life that no one ever gave you a sandwich or a $10 bill? And I was thinking about this, and I said, God bless you. I want to pray for you. I want you to know that God loves you. I kept on saying, God bless you to him. He's like, yeah, yeah, thank you. God bless you too. And we parted ways. 
But I was thinking to myself, when Jesus goes, you fed me when I was hungry, and you clothed me when I was naked, you is plural. And I, I couldn't get that out of my head. There was only so much I could do personally. And I'm not sharing the story to say, wow, I'm such a good person. I'm not, because I didn't do anything. I fed his stomach for like 10 minutes or an hour, and he's going to get hungry again. That $10 is going to go away. It's not going to help him for the long term. And when Jesus goes, you fed me, it's a plural. And I realized we as the church need to rise up and do something about it. We can't just stay comfortable in our zones and think Christmas is about me making sure I get presents for every single person in my family. And that's the biggest anxiety we have. When we think about Christmas, what actually happened? Jesus himself came down from his comfort zone, from the warm feeling that we are trying to get from Christmas. He was already there in the infinite sense and he came down into a manger and he was uncomfortable. Uncomfortable to the degree that he knew that he would be killed. He would be tortured but he did it because he loved us. That's the kind of scandalous love we've been given. That's the kind of scandalous love we need to practice too as a church. This is what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. How do we practice scandalous love? It's not the question, are you worthy of my love? That's not practicing scandalous love. God says, go and love, and we do it. That's practicing scandalous love. Love as I have loved you. That's putting it into action. That's practicing scandalous love. Christmas is not feeling warm and gooey with your family. The first Christmas was about God leaving that warm and gooey place to go to a tragic, helpless place to give us the love we desperately needed that we didn't deserve. And if you know that's Christmas, then it's time for us to stand up as well and to live out this scandalous love. How do we do it? We put it into action. We put it into action. My challenge now from this passage is to recognize it's not about the easy way out. It's about the difficult sometimes. Many times it is difficult. You know, for me, this whole building issue has now become secondary because is the building really about us being comfortable, warm, and gooey? Or is this building helping us promote us to go out there and truly scatter? And as a church, you, plural, meaning us together, we would work to feed those that are hungry, to clothe those that are naked, to shelter those that don't have a home, that say, that say, no one's ever been this nice to me before. And you're wondering, have they never seen Jesus in anybody? It's us. We've been called out to go there. 
We've been called out to demonstrate his love, his scandalous love to all those that need it, just as we got it. Don't you see? We got that scandalous love. We didn't deserve it. We are Gomer and we didn't deserve it, but we got it. It's time for us to get out there and also exercise that scandalous love. Let's go out there. Let's really show the world that Christmas isn't just about saying Merry Christmas. Christmas is about showing the world that Jesus came, and that means a lot. And we show them. Let's pray. Let's take this time to reflect on what we've been uh, given in his word And if there is repentance that needs to take place, if it was about me, me feeling warm, me feeling gooey, me being loved, let's take this time to repent and say, God, I have received this love in Jesus. Help me to trust in your promise, just as Mary did, but now help me to live out that scandalous love to those that you call me to. Let's really take this time to meditate pray, and lift up our lives to the Lord. Let's pray.